Well, if you'd like, you can turn in Psalm 119 to verse 81. Continuing our time in Psalm 119, we'll read verses 81 through 88 as the reading of God's Word this evening. Lend your attention, this is the very Word of God. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on the earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Now join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon the sermon this evening. Father, our eyes long to see your salvation. How we long for the day of seeing Christ face to face. We know your word tells us that this day is sure. And we have tasted of the eternal life, of the blessedness which the Son has won for us, and which even now He distributes as the, the fruit of His labors. And this He does at your right hand, and this is our salvation and our confidence. And so we ask that you would strengthen our faith this very day and displaying our King, our priest, our prophet, and that through the eyes of faith we might glimpse him in his glory and so be encouraged. And moved to worship, for he is worthy. We cannot produce these things, we cannot do these things, uh, but you are pleased to do them. And we ask that you do them according to your word. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. You can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We'll read a brief section of scripture, reading verses 8 through 11. And then we'll turn our attention to Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 28. But first, lend your attention. This is the Word of God. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And Westminster Shorter Catechism 28 asks, Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. One of my favorite movies growing up as a kid was The Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. Have you seen this movie? I am terrible at this. (laughs) It's a wonderful rendition of the folk hero Robin Hood. Um, And even as uh, young boys, uh, we could appreciate his bravery and courage and valiance. The story of Robin Hood is uh, the story of uh, an outlaw and his band of merry men. King Richard, Richard the Lionheart, was away, and on the throne of England at the time was the imposter, Prince John. And there's a scene in uh, the movie where um, Robin, a sworn and loyal subject to Richard, accidentally robs Richard. Do you remember the scene? Maybe you don't. Richard and his men have returned, but they've disguised themselves. And Robin patrols the forest with his men, and he robs from the rich to give to the poor to basically adjust the foul reign of Prince John. And so Richard is traveling with his knights, but they are in lowly traveling clothing, and they move through Sherwood Forest, and Robin pounces, and he robs King Richard. And Richard travels with him for a certain amount of time until he drops the traveling clothes, and the royal insignia shines forth, and Richard is made known for who he is. And then Robin falls to his knees, along with his men, and declares his loyalty and his love for this good king. In Westminster 28, we consider the state of exaltation, the glory that now attends the person of the Son, which was veiled for his whole life. Imagine walking hand in hand with the living and true God, the Holy One of Israel. Imagine feeding 5,000. Imagine moving through crowds, and it was as if just another man were among them. But no longer is this the case, for Jesus Christ has been highly exalted. Jesus Christ has been glorified as the obedient 
servant is now magnified as the Lord of all. There's a bit of tension here because in some ways, glory is something old and something new for Jesus Christ. It's something old in that it is a return to the glory that he enjoyed with the Father before all worlds. This is what he prays in John 17, isn't it? Glorify thou me, Father, with the glory that I enjoyed with you before all worlds. In some ways, this is a resumption. In some ways, this is assuming that position, which is the eternal Son's rightful place. But it's also something new, isn't it? Something brand new that took place on the third day And then later when he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand. And what is new is that it is not just that the eternal Son of God embarked upon this trajectory, but the Christ, true God and true man, was taken upon this trajectory and established in glory. It is as our representative, it is as our king, that the exaltation of Jesus Christ shines forth as the blessedness which is ours. For in sitting in the presence of God as true man, he has reestablished us in the presence of God, which sin had forfeited us. This is our king. This is the exalted Lord whom we serve. We do not now see Christ exalted. Interestingly, the few instances that we do have in Scripture of his earthly servants beholding with earthly eyes the exalted Christ, they didn't go so well. (laughs) You have the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter's rather confused there. Luke even mentions that. He says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. He was essentially out of his mind momentarily when he said, why don't we build some tents? (laughs) He appeared this way to John, the beloved apostle. And John fell as one dead. (laughs) So it seems that there is a certain kindness that the Lord has extended to us in veiling the full scope of his glory as the resurrected, ascended, and all-glorious one, for it doesn't seem that we could quite take it in in this particular season of providence. There will come a day when we can, and indeed, the seeing of him will result in our immediate transformation. But we do see him as glorious through the eyes of faith. For we proclaim a resurrected Lord. We proclaim an ascended Lord. We proclaim a coming King. One who will return to make all things right. All things new. Return for his bride. And in so doing, we are proclaiming an exalted Lord. Or we are proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ in a state of exaltation. And thus we are invited to consider the matchless glory that attends our husband our King, our representative, our Savior, and our Lord. And this is to our great encouragement, strength, joy, and hope.
so we can consider the exaltation of Christ under the head of the resurrection, the ascension and session, and the return. First, the glory of the resurrection. In many ways, the resurrection is the turning point of human history. Finally, something new. There had been talk of resurrection in the Old Testament. There had been types of resurrection in the Old Testament. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, finally, there is something new. A power that is not subject to death and corruption and decay bursts onto the scene of human history. In time and space, Jesus Christ, true man, was raised from the dead. This is a central fact in the gospel presentation. That's what Paul says famously in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Scriptures there that Paul has in mind aren't exactly clear, but when Jesus presses upon His hearers that He's going to raise from the dead, He cites Jonah, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. So too, the sun will be three days in the grave. But then that third day when the sun was raised from the dead happened in time and space. And this fact of the resurrection sits near the heart of that gospel presentation. Paul's going to make much of it in chapter 15. He says, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then you're still in your sins. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then we're liars. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then all of this is a sham and we are ridiculous beyond description. That's true. We will be the laughing stock of the universe if Christ wasn't raised from the dead. But Paul says he was raised from the dead. Jesus Christ on the third day rose again from the dead just as he said he was going to do. Tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it. John 2. When he was raised from the dead, the disciples realized he was talking about himself as the true temple. He came, and he said he was going to be handed over. He said he was going to suffer many things, and he said no one took his life from him, but he laid it down willingly. And he said, just as I willingly lay it down, I pick it back up again. No one's ever done that. But he did. And this is part of his glory. The blessings that open up to us in the face of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are numerable. It says it's his vindication in 1 Timothy 3.16. It proves that everything he said is true. It proves he was exactly who he said he was. He did exactly what he came to do. And he did it to the pleasure of his father. As on the third day, he said, very good, and raised him from the dead because of the obedience of the son. 
because of the perfection of the faithful servant. Paul says in Romans 4, he was raised for our justification. For God pronounced upon him righteous, vindicated. And because we are in him clothed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we share in that verdict. The resurrection is the proof that we are declared righteous before God. We're also invited to see our new life of faith, hope, and love in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For eternal life, resurrection life, the divine life, however you want to phrase it, Scripture uses all three of those categories to get at the quality of life of a different order and magnitude that has issued forth in Jesus Christ's resurrection of which we are now participants and one day we'll be all in all. And it's also the proof of our bodily resurrection. Because he has been raised from the dead as the first fruits, we no longer fear the grave. But we know that we will walk the way that he walked, both in shame and in glory. For he is our head and we are his body. The glory of Jesus Christ on display in the resurrection is not simply that he came back from the dead. This isn't just a recitation. The glory of Jesus Christ is on display is that as true man, he is elevated beyond death. That death has absolutely no sway or influence over him. Indeed, death itself is now subject to him. That is the glory of our King. That is the glory of the exalted Lord. This is what he himself says in Revelation 1. Revelation 1, verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The one who died lives forevermore. Death has nothing to do with this one anymore. And it's not just that. He has the keys of death and Hades in his hand. And as it were, with the other hand, he reaches to his beloved servant in a posture of uplifting encouraging who can see who can comprehend a king like this death has nothing to do with you anymore we whose every waking moment is surrounded by death if you woke up this morning and it hurt more than the morning before you know death <laughs> if things are getting harder for you and not easier you know death. We know death. We see it in our faces. We feel it in our bodies. We see it on display around us. This one is over death. No wonder he passes out. You don't have the categories to understand such a one, but with the keys in one hand, a gentle touch with the other, he raises up his servant. And what does he say to him? What a beautiful takeaway this is for us. For we serve the one who has conquered death. We serve the one 
over whom death has no sway. Indeed, we serve the one who is Lord over it in that it is subject to him. And what does he tell his servant? Fear not. Look, you don't have to be afraid anymore. Everybody's afraid of death. You don't have to be. Why? Because he loves you and he's beat death. Fear not is like the understatement of a century there. Fear not, little ones. I'm the first. I'm the last. I died. I live forevermore. The keys of death and Hades are in my hand. Fear not. The source of our encouragement, the source of our courage in the face of all trials, all suffering, all difficulty in this world is that we serve the exalted Lord who is over death. We see the glory of this king continued in his ascension and his session. I've never been to a coronation ceremony. That'd be something, I imagine. As the glory of the kingdom is on display in this high and lofty ceremony, marking a king taking his rightful place over a kingdom. And the riches of that kingdom are on display in that ceremony. The Lord Jesus Christ had such a ceremony, but we didn't get to see it. The heavenly places did. Psalm 24, potentially a glimpse at what was going on in heaven when the Lord Jesus Christ took his place at the right hand of the Father upon completion of the task as the faithful servant. You can read Psalm 24, but we do get it from earth's perspective in Acts 1. And again, confusion reigned. <laughs> Acts 1, 11. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So heaven is celebrating. I thought about adding a brief lecture on heaven here. Heaven is a created place. It is a place that God made. It is not eternal in the sense that God is eternal. God alone is eternal. Heaven is a created place where creatures inhabit this strange spiritual register. And Jesus Christ went there as true man and took his place as Lord of that realm and this realm. And that realm went nuts. They're singing, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy, worthy, worthy. You get a glimpse of it as the heavens open unto John. You get a glimpse of it in Psalm 24. So they see, oh, this is the most wonderful thing that has ever happened. The eternal decree has come to pass in that Jesus Christ has conquered sin, conquered death, and He has reestablished man, the jewel of His creation, in His presence. He's conquered the serpent. His servants have been given eternal life, which they forfeited when they bought his foul lie. This is wonderful. Heaven rejoices. And on earth, they're like, I don't understand any of this. What am I looking at? <laughs> so the angels come along, and they're like, you guys, snap out of it. <laughs> Confusion when Christ entered into heaven as true man and took his seat at the right hand of high 
thankfully, Christ ascended and poured out the Spirit, and some understanding started to blossom. That's what we see in Acts 2, 33 and 34, as we hear about what was going on in this mysterious realm that the apostles were looking at, going, I don't see anything. What's going on up there? And then the Holy Spirit came down and it explained what was going on up there. So Peter preaches his first sermon. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Ivan comes down to earth in the form of the Holy Spirit. Peter understands that the promises have been fulfilled. That Christ taking his seat at the right hand as the obedient servant has poured out the promise, has poured out the blessing, which is what? The presence of God. The Holy Spirit taking up His residence in the midst of His servants, indeed in His servants, as what? The fruit of Christ's labor. It's the declaration that this is the King who was found faithful and all blessings have been earned by Him and He now turns and pours it out. The ascension and the session or Christ in His glory being declared by the Father to be the true King and extending the spoils of His victory. Indeed, eternal life. Indeed, the fulfillment of the promise. Indeed, the very presence of God in us as that which He has won and that which He is now extending far as the curse is found. Christ is present with us now in the person of the Holy Spirit. But one day He's coming again in the same visible human body as the disciples saw when He ascended. It's Williamson in his commentary on the Shorter Catechism. We can ask briefly, where is the Lord Jesus Christ? And we already said it from one angle. But from another angle, it's really important to highlight that He's not here. That's really important because it postures us rightly for the way that He is present. Christ at the end of Matthew says what? Behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. So we expect Christ's presence in some sense, but we have to deal with this other coordinate that's opened up in that He's gone. The angel says, look, He's going to come back, but right now He's gone. And that posture, as Michael Horton points out, of acknowledging that he's truly absent means that we're, we're, we're expectant. We're set in hope. We're waiting, as it were, expectantly for this last great act of the Son's glory. But it also postures us rightly here for the way that the Son is present according to his promise, namely by his word. By His Spirit. It is a spiritual presence that confirms for us the truth of what the Son has done. The power that alone is possessed by the Son. And the fact that He has made us His own. These things 
are how we experience the presence of the Son as we await His bodily return. We can also ask, what, the, what is the Son doing now? The image of sitting down at the right hand seems a little restful, doesn't it? <laughs> We're speaking metaphorically here. Of course, God does not have a right hand. This is the position of favor. This is a position of uncontested sovereignty. John T. Rhodes, in his little book, which is quite good, Man of Sorrows, Lord of Glory, comments, Jesus Christ's sitting does not highlight his inactivity, but rather his uncontested and unassailable position of sovereign supremacy and favor. It means that he can save because all things serve him. It means that he delights to save because the Father gives all things to the Son. And that's the point that Hebrews 4 really presses home as it considers this session at the right hand as that iteration of Christ's exaltation. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're to see in the Son And the session at the right hand, great encouragement for us to draw near. Great reason to be convinced that, no, 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 He is favorably disposed towards us. And He is powerful to save. Both of these things generate in our heart, or they ought to, generate in our heart a confidence in drawing near to the throne for the many seasons of need. Indeed, the season of need which covers the entirety of our life in this world of woe as citizens of heaven. And so we see in the Son's exaltation there a source of our confidence in drawing near in this world of many trials. And we can consider last and briefly the glory of the return of the king. When Richard the Lionheart was away, the imposter to the throne, Prince John, made a real mess of things. And Robin and his men were declared to be outlaws because they were loyal to the true king. Once more, John T. Rose points out that the church occupies a similarly precarious position. That all manner of imposter kings, imposter gods who do not acknowledge the true Lord have declared the church to be outlaws, as it were. They've declared the church to be treasonous towards the world of man. The difference between us and Robin is that Robin didn't know for sure if Richard was coming back. We know that Christ is coming back and that his return is going to put all things to rights. That every sinner outside of Christ will be judged and that even this world of groaning is going to be dissolved and a world of song everlasting life everlasting is going to be put in place. But as far as the return of the Son goes, there is much that we do not know. Mark 13, 32 tells us that nobody knows when Christ is coming back. 
but he's coming back. We know according to 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3. I get faster with my page flips. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. As a husband who's witnessed the rather jarring and sudden dissension of labor pains upon a woman, it's a striking image (laughs) that came out of nowhere. Things went from zero to a hundred rather quickly. (laughs) It's the image there coupled with the picture of a thief in the night. Sudden, things normal, things not normal. And this, we know, is how the end will be. Interestingly here, we know that it's also going to look a lot like it looks right now. The end is going to come unexpectedly. That's what he says, the gifts of This life are going to continue right up until the end. While people are saying there is peace and security. Matthew 24 says that the days of Noah are going to be just like the days of the Son of Man. Or the days of the Son of Man are going to be just like the days of Noah. And what does he say? They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage right until the end. Those common grace blessings. Seed time. Harvest. Peace in terms of quiet in general, not full flood, a certain stability is going to exist until the very end. And then it's over. Eternity opens up. Glory opens up. And the church is ushered in to bliss. Every single thing that the Son said was going to happen, happened. We're just waiting on one. Everything that he said he was going to do was fulfilled, including the rather astonishing feat of rising from the dead. Him returning is not too difficult, even though it's hard to imagine. We're talking about one who has been elevated beyond death, who possesses all authority and power, and who is the eternal Word, the one in whom all things hold together. Recall the God who spoke light, and there was light. The return of a king to make all things right, and the wiping away of every tear, and the putting right all that was wrong is not too difficult, and it is the very thing he said he was going to do. And for this reason, we can be patient. It's easier to wait with patience when you know what's coming is sure. It's not in doubt. And that enables the church to occupy this posture of waiting with a certain grace and dignity. For it's not a matter of if the Son is returning. It's a matter of when. And even our waiting can be infused with a certain joy. Because the astonishing fact is that as good as any of our lives might be in this world, and make no mistake, 
most of us know rich blessing in this world. As good as any of us have had it in this world, or as difficult as any of us have had it in this world, for a Christian, the unambiguous testimony of Scripture is, the best is yet to come. And the bliss that opens up age upon age, when the one who loved us and gave himself for us and has taken us as his special possession, indeed his very bride, when this one returns, a paradise of God descends forever and ever in unbroken praise. This is a reason for all patience to be intended attended with joy, for we were poor, and he has made us rich beyond telling. And even so, even in the face of the truth that we can be patient because he is coming, we can be patient with joy because he brings a kingdom in its consummation like no other, even still we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this king, the blessings that have passed unto us in his reign, the life that even now we taste by faith as you have brought forth from our hearts that declaration of life, Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is much that we attest by faith, Lord, for we do not see, indeed, We live by faith in things unseen. This life we live, we live by faith. And so we yearn for the day of seeing, of knowing as we are known. But until then, we rejoice that we serve this one who has been exalted, in whom all of your promises are yes and amen. And we ask only to see him clearer and clearer now by the eyes of faith that we may be encouraged, that we may be patient, and that we may taste of the joy which will be ours, age without end. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.